Well, if you could, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We're actually going to go look at what Jesus had to say about these treasures. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 and 46. And as you're doing that, I'd like you to think back to when you were really young, whether that was three years ago or 35 years ago, to those early Christmases, those Christmases where you were really excited about what was under the tree. At our house, we used to get one big gift, and you may do that at your house as well. So we knew if we got that one big gift every year, man, Christmas was made. In many ways, I didn't care about what else was under the tree. If I got one gift, I was in. I was happy. I was excited. My year was made. As I got older, my requests became a little more expensive. (laughs) And so mom and dad would say, well, Dave, if you really want that one gift, we'll think about it. And if you do find it under the tree, just know that you may not see anything else there. That may be the only thing you get. So I'm left with a decision. All right, I can have one gift and watch my brothers and sisters open lots of other things, or I can have lots of gifts, but not that one. And so I had to make a decision. And the decision I was weighing, even at a young age, is, is that one gift worth the cost? That's what Jesus is trying to get at with these parables. Let me read them. They're very short, very sharp, very succinct, but profound. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus, greatest teacher in history, is using grammar tools to help us understand what the value of the kingdom of heaven is. He's using similes. I remember my fifth grade teacher telling me this. If you're in fifth grade here with us, you know that. Similes are things that that help us compare different things using words like, like or as, so we get a vision of what one is like. Lisa, she's as sharp as a tack. Caleb, he's as strong as an ox. And Jesus uses these similes about the kingdom of heaven to force us, he wants us to ask three really important questions. He he tells us that the kingdom of heaven is like a hidden treasure. Then he goes on and says it's like a really valuable pearl. But to get the meaning, the understanding of what Jesus was trying to communicate about the kingdom of heaven, we really need to know what the kingdom of heaven is about. We understand treasure and pearls, but what does Jesus mean when he says kingdom of heaven? He means the kingdom of God. Does that help? Probably not. When Jesus said the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, he was talking about the exact same thing. Whenever you see one in the Bible or the other, they mean the same thing. And really what he was saying is, it's not a place. It's not a time in the distant future. Whenever Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, he was talking about his very own person. His life, death, and resurrection. So whenever you hear me refer to the kingdom of heaven as mentioned, and you're going to hear it a number of times, think Jesus. Insert Jesus when you hear the kingdom of heaven, and you will be tracking 
with this. And it's important for us to get this because it was the emphasis of Jesus' ministry. If it was the emphasis of Jesus' ministry, it should be the emphasis of our lives. Jesus often talked about this. He said at the beginning of his ministry, repent and believe. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus himself was at hand. He was offering forgiveness. So let's look at these parables with that understanding of the kingdom of heaven and ask these three questions that will help us develop our response to the question, for you, is Jesus worth the cost? First question, are you amazed by the great worth of the kingdom? Second question, have you counted the cost of the kingdom? And lastly, and most importantly, do you believe the great rewards of the kingdom? So first off, are you amazed at the great worth of the kingdom? And it is great. It's greater than anything else. And Jesus tried to use words like pearl and treasure to help us grasp that. Now, for men and women in the 20, in back 2,000 years ago, that wasn't that hard to use words like pearls and treasures. They knew instantly they were farmers. They were fishermen. They lived day to day. Visions of pearls and treasures immediately lifted their sight. Great wealth was at stake. We walk through the mall, these little stands that have pearls there. I don't think it does it for us. So I want to give you a couple pictures that may help elevate your understanding of the worth of the kingdom. And the first, if you've watched any of the Lord of the Rings movies or read the book, you know what I'm talking about when I say this. The kingdom of heaven is like the treasure buried deep inside Lonely Mountain. Dana, you remember this scene? He's been traipsing all across the countryside, and he stumbles in. He's got to fight smog, but he's got this treasure laid before him. And believe it or not, some business writer actually went to the effort, who has way too much time on his hands, to calculate the value of that treasure. So he measures, the, he estimates the size of the dragon, the depth of the cave, the, the cost of an ounce of gold, all the rubies and pearls and things like that, puts it in his calculator, and he comes out with $62 billion is what that is. That helps me get a glimpse of maybe the worth of the kingdom of heaven. Second picture. I say again, the kingdom of heaven is like the largest pearl that has ever been found in history. About 13 years ago, a Filipino fisherman was searching for clams. That was his job. And clams, like oysters, hold pearls sometimes. And he was hoping against hope that this time he'd go out and one of those big clams would contain a pearl. And he found a pearl. Two feet long, 75 pounds. He was shocked. He was amazed. But he really understood the worth of this when it was valued at over $100 million. $62 billion of Bilbo's treasure, 100 million pound pearl. I'm starting to get a, a glimpse, maybe, of the worth, the kingdom of heaven. But we must remember, these are only comparisons. They're faint echoes. They're just dim glimmers of the great worth of the kingdom of heaven because Jesus himself is the buried treasure. 
Jesus himself is the pearl of great price. But unlike those things, he cannot be measured or counted. He cannot be buried or hidden, and he will never be bought because he's immeasurable, he's incalculable, he's priceless. And you know why? Because you cannot put a price on a life. He was the priceless pearl who died in our place so that we could be something. He was alluding to this on the last night before he was crucified. He says to his disciples, as he held up a cup, what we celebrated last Sunday, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So what is the value of the blood of Christ for you? It's immeasurable, isn't it? It covers all of our sins, and it had to be immeasurable because our sins, as the psalmist says, are as high as the mountains. The blood of Jesus Christ is the only thing that allows God to look at us with pleasure. That's invaluable. You know who understood this well? was a man who denied Jesus three times. Our sins are great. Peter's were as well. He knew he had denied Christ three times. Later on, in his first letter, he writes this. He understood the great worth of Jesus. Do you not know, he writes, that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with what? The precious blood of Christ. Jesus' blood is immeasurably precious. Do you know what Peter knew? Does it cause you to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Remember, uh, Jason, in the Sermon on the Mount, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness have the kingdom of heaven. Do you love God's word? Jesus is the word made flesh. The psalmist said the word of God is to be more desired than gold, even much fine gold. Do you turn to the word of God for life's decisions? Or do you go through, based on your feelings, what you think is wise? Jesus and his word is more precious than fine gold. Let's go there and not to our own wisdom. So if you hunger and thirst for Jesus, if you love his word, then you're getting a taste and a glimpse of the glory and the worth of the kingdom of heaven. Next question. Have you counted the great cost of the kingdom? And it is a great cost. The parables, both of them, say the same thing. The man who found the treasure had to sell all that he had to buy the field. The merchant in search of fine pearls had to sell everything he had, and it was probably a lot more than the man with the hidden treasure. He had to sell everything he had in order to get that one pearl of great value. That's what it was for them. It's the same thing for us. Jesus is asking all, all that we have. I don't know about you, but when I buy things, it drives my wife crazy. I'm always trying to get the best deal. Always looking, whether it's a box of cereal or a new car, I'm looking for the best deal. I want to pay as little as I can to get as much as I can. That's great when I'm buying stuff for the house. 
It's a horrible way to live our lives in relation to Jesus Christ. What's the least I need to do to be right with Christ? Sometimes I can measure myself against other Christians. What are they doing or not doing? And depending on how I rank, all right, I'm in a good place. How often do I need to go to church? How many minutes do I need to listen to the Bible on the way to work? How much do I have to give to church? How close can I get to that line and not cross over? When we think like this, we are trying to get something of infinite value. That's what Jesus is. He's of infinite value. We're trying to get something like that by digging in our pockets and saying, how much change do I have here? I want that. We do not get to set the price of what Jesus requires. Jesus sets it for us. He said it will cost everything, and it will. We have to give him all that we have. But we know, it's surprising, as much as we know what Christ has done, as great as his worth is, we have problems giving, not just all, but sometimes something. Why is that? It's frustrating. Maybe it's because we're clinging too tightly to this life and not thinking about what we've been promised. Or maybe we're too focused on the cost and not remembering the infinite worth of Jesus and his glory. I do believe if we're thinking rightly, if we're understanding the gospel, if the Spirit's opening our eyes, and we really do see the immeasurable worth of Jesus, the cost will not seem as great as it sometimes does. Paul grasped this. He wrote this near the end. When he was in jail, actually, he wrote this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss not just some things. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I, might be gain, that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Paul gets this. Got it at the very core of his being. Do we? What is for us the loss of all things? How does that apply to us right here in Downingtown? Well, we have a real story, not a parable, of the rich young ruler. And he came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you must sell all that you have and give to the poor. The man was faced with the question, is Jesus worth the cost? And sadly, he didn't really understand the worth of the kingdom. And so he forfeited the kingdom. He walked away from eternal life. Now, did Jesus want his money? No, he didn't. Did Jesus need his money? No, he doesn't need your money either. But what he's interested in is our relationship with money. What does our heart say? He wants our heart. He says, what's the, what's the first commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's what Jesus is demanding of us. Everything else will take care of it. We do that, we get the great treasure. So what does all mean for you? It means something different for each of us. I can't tell you, but I can tell you this. If you've never trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, 
just like the rich young ruler, you've got a decision to make. Is Jesus worth the cost? You're going to have to give up your love of this world and the love of the things of this world. You're going to have to give up your own efforts to be right with God. You've got to let go of your definition of how much the kingdom costs and agree and submit to Jesus' definition. What if you've already trusted Christ for forgiveness? What if you already have the kingdom? You got everything, right? Is this parable for you? You bet it is. Jesus said the Christian walk is one of denial and sacrifice and service from the beginning to the end. Ask yourself, if you have the kingdom, does my life demonstrate that I grasp the kingdom, that I grasp the great cost of it, or are there times when my lips say one thing and my life declares something different? Final question. To answer that big question of whether Jesus is worth the cost, do you believe the great rewards of the kingdom? There's a cost, but there's also a reward. In these parables, we're not really told what the rewards are. We get a, we get a glimpse of their value because people give everything that they have and they have great joy. But what exactly are they? I want to share with you at least three rewards of the kingdom of heaven. Isaac, you and the band can come on up. First reward for those in the kingdom of heaven. And this is the big one. This is what delivers every other reward that we get. We have peace with God. That's the big one. Only people, the only people who have peace with God are those who have submitted their lives to Christ, asked for forgiveness of their sins, repented, and received the gift of mercy and grace, the forgiveness of their sins. They are the people who are the brothers of Jesus. Once we were brothers of wrath, children of wrath, now we're sons of God, made righteous by what Jesus has done for us. Not by what we've done, not by what we've put in the offering plate, but because of what Jesus has done for us. He is what purchases peace with God. No matter how great your sins, no matter how many there are, no matter how big they are in your mind, if you've trusted in Jesus, you're forgiven. You have peace with God. No matter what your earthly enemies are, it doesn't matter. You are no longer an enemy of God. That's something to be grateful for. Second reward flowing from the first. We can have contentment in this life. Yesterday I was in the yard and it's on the tractor and it didn't work. And I was tempted to be discontent. And I was for a while. And I had to get a grip, had to get a hold of myself and say, no, this is not the worst thing that could happen to me. Sometimes things that dislodge us from contentment are small things like that or grand things, real serious trials that people walk through. They all tend to cause us to lose that contentment, that peace with God. You know, the reality is this life can be hard. Our sin, the sin against us, can make it difficult to find contentment. It always seems to be just out of reach. But in our suffering, in our trials, as we fight for contentment, we also have the promise of reward. 
that God gives to those who suffer with Christ, that we also would be glorified with him. Our contentment in Christ in the midst of trial also has a powerful witnessing effect, you guys. You should know this. If you've been around people who are suffering, they do it well with their eyes fixed on Jesus. We, we can say with the psalmist that the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places when the world does not understand it. <laughs> it stands out. How can you be that way? And you have an opportunity to share the great worth of Jesus and what he's done for you. Last reward. Even though contentment in this world can be fading and fleeting, just out of reach, we have the promise of eternal joy that awaits us. And this flows from the first reward as well. We can't have the promise of eternal joy if we don't have peace with God. Any present joy that we have, you guys, that God grants us by his grace is a glimmer of the joy that we're going to have in heaven when we're with him. He promises us a life without suffering, no more sorrow, no more tears. That does await everyone who's trusted in Jesus Christ. Death has lost its sin, his sting. We're not even going to be able to sin. How, how discontent are you when you sin or you are sinned against? That's not going to exist in heaven. You have that to look forward to. And think of this. You who have put your trust in Christ, when you stand before him, out of his mouth is going to come these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest. You're going to know I did nothing to deserve this. How can he say that about me? And it's because the Father is pleased because of the Son, of what he's done for you. And you get that. And you get to hear those words. That can, that can motivate us in this life, you guys, to continue to run the race that he's called us. One day you will hear all those sacrifices you make. You pass through suffering. You choose Jesus and not the things of this world. You got those words coming for you. Well done, good and faithful servant. That eternal joy will stay with you for the rest of eternity. If you've known that experience, you can now worship with us what Christ has done for you. If you haven't yet trusted in Jesus, please, please count the cost. A whole new life of peace, contentment, and joy is there for the asking. And believe me, Jesus is worth the cost. Let's worship.